But we start the show today talking about long-term care. And as we know, the changes are in place, coming into place when it comes to visitation. And many people very happy about that, that there will be increased visits and uh, much happier uh, visits coming to long-term care. But this comes at the same time as a new report shows what happened in some long-term care facilities, particularly during the beginning of the second wave of the COVID-19 outbreak. And this was a report by Vancouver Coastal Health that was obtained by the Globe and Mail. A Canadian press has also been reporting on this today that takes a look specifically at Vancouver's Little Mountain Place, where the outbreak there killed 41 seniors living in that home. Joining me now to talk more about what we have learned is Isabel McKenzie, BC's Seniors Advocate. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, is there anything that you know of or in this report that's being talked about today that uh, comes as a surprise or, or we didn't already have some idea what's happening? No, I think the report, which is fairly narrowly focused on factors that would arguably be be related to the, the regulatory licensing requirements of the care home, I think identifies some of the issues. I don't think that it has the breadth to look at all of the issues that contributed to the the degree of outbreak we saw at Little Mountain, which is similar to outbreaks we saw in some, but not all of our care homes. And I think that is the, the question we need to be asking, which is uh, there were issues related to staffing, there were issues related to infection control practices around cleaning. We don't know to what degree the, the PPE practice questions um, uh, how, how that played a, a role as well. But I think what we need to be looking at is there were several very large bad outbreaks during a period of time when there were also outbreaks that were contained. And why w- did those differences exist? Why did you have uh, Little Mountain Place experiencing the horrific outbreak it did and during the same time period in the same health authority you had other care homes experience very small outbreaks. The the data that we have now tell us that we had uh, across the province until the end of February 360 outbreaks, but 230 of those outbreaks were contained to a single case. And so we need to understand what the differences and why the differences between those care homes that experienced big outbreaks and those that didn't. And this report doesn't quite get to the heart of that. Does it give us some idea, though, in that, and again, that it would need more investigation, but we could look at things like staff shortages, uh, people coming into the facility, whether in the early days it was staff or visitors who were maybe not feeling 100% and shouldn't have come in uh, to the facility, that kind of thing? Yes, and that's, as you know, my office is undertaking a a review of the totality of the pandemic in long-term care up until the end of February and looking at these patterns. And so we've identified, okay, we're going to look at every care home and assisted living site in the province, those that experienced an outbreak, those that didn't, what were there, if any, differences between sites as a result that could have contributed to that. And then look at those that did experience outbreaks. And the big question that I think we need to have answered is, why did some care homes have big outbreaks and other care homes were able to contain the outbreaks, given that these outbreaks were happening at the same time 
in the same health authority, the same virus, the same theoretical PPE practices in place, and, and look at what were the predictive patterns. So in the case of Little Mountain, where there was inadequate staffing, was there a way to have predicted that the staffing would reach that critical level that it would contribute to the spread of an outbreak versus other care homes, which arguably were also stressed for staff, but didn't experience that degree of an outbreak. Uh, and it's one thing I would imagine when looking at care homes like Little Mountain with the, the extent of the outbreak, as you said, compared to other ones that got outbreak as under control. Are we also looking at perhaps long-term care facilities that had no outbreaks? And was it the luck that the, the virus simply didn't make its way into the long-term care facility or the response that even if it did make it in, stopped it from spreading? Well, we will know that answer when we analyze the data, Jill, but I think the preliminary um, results are telling us that given an outbreak is declared on one test positive case of a staff or resident, you sort of do scratch your head around, you know, what could a care home have done to have prevented one staff member who lives out in the community from contracting COVID? The real issue is how could they prevent the uh, virus from spreading. When you think about the protocols we had in place, uh, they were based on the following, that we were going to stop the virus getting into the care home by making sure that people who were not feeling well didn't report to work, and if they didn't feel well, they would get tested for the virus, and if they tested positive, we would implement a series of protocols in that care home. We also had an added layer that said, okay, we are also going to implement infection control practices in care homes in case a staff member sheds the virus and we don't know that they're infected. So that's why we are wearing masks. That's why we are um, uh, doing our enhanced cleaning protocols, those types of things. So when you see a virus that's spread in a care home, those protocols were not effective. So whether it's because what we thought was the index case wasn't the index case because the first person to get tested happened to be the first person to show symptoms and it had already been spreading before that, and the degree to which our personal protective equipment, most notably our our surgical masks and our hand washing, were followed to the degree that they need to be followed in order to be effective. And we're going to take a look at that and find out, well, okay, here's, here's the pattern that existed in those care homes that experienced large outbreaks, such as Little Mountain. And here's the experience and the pattern in those care homes where they contained the outbreak and see what differences there were and where we can learn. Uh, Does it also shed a light or or put a light on, I know there's been a lot of talk about private versus public long-term care facilities. Uh, Does it show the need for no matter what type of facility it is, there needs to be a benchmark, there needs to be a standard of care, and whoever is running it needs to maintain and inspections need to be done to make sure that standard of care is there? I think so. Now, you know, there's different ways of looking at this. I know Ontario has produced uh, a very um, compelling, statistically compelling set of results. British Columbia's results around 
owner-operator type are less compelling, meaning that there uh, is a difference. It's not as statistically significant as the differences in Ontario. We find that the biggest difference was between sites that were owned and operated and sites that were contracted, um, irrespective of whether they were a private for-profit or a private not-for-profit. And we need to delve more deeply to see to to what degree those patterns exist and ask the question why. And I think I've said this before, ownership in and of itself didn't ultimately determine uh, whether there was a COVID outbreak. Every outbreak didn't happen in a private care home and every private care home didn't experience an outbreak. So that in and of itself was not both necessary and sufficient to um, decree that it would have an outbreak. We need to understand, was there a relationship between staffing levels? Was there a relationship between what whether staff were granted paid sick leave or not? Was there a difference on what staff were paid prior to the wage leveling? Was there a difference in the casual, regular uh, complement in a particular care home? All of these, I think, will tell us the, the kinds of changes that we need to make that arguably will improve care overall, irrespective of infection control um, uh, measures, and will better prepare us for the next pandemic. Uh, and, and we're all very hopeful that notwithstanding what's happening in the community at the moment with COVID, in long-term care, we appear to be on the other side of the worst of it in terms of this, I mean, just the the, the dramatic, dramatic drop in our uh, outbreaks. I think we've only got two outbreaks at the moment, and none of the vaccinated residents are experiencing serious illness. Which is very uh, great news. I just wanted to ask you quickly as well about the relaxing because of that for visitation and people being able to have more contact with family members and friends. Do you have any concerns or do you think that that's going to be okay? Well, I think that given the the risk has been uh, reduced significantly, Jill, Uh, almost, almost every resident is vaccinated. Over half of them have been vaccinated twice. Um, on on average, over 80% of staff are vaccinated. So the protective factor in long-term care is is quite significant. It's sort of like the microcosm of where we want to be with our community immunity. And so we're still, even with that, we haven't thrown caution completely to the wind here. Uh, Visitors are still required to wear a mask. They still have to wash their hands. They still can't go when they're sick. They can still only go two at a time, but um, we have, I think, addressed the fact that these residents have been separated from some of their family members for over a year now, and if not now, then when? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that with the modifications that have been made, the visits being allowed in the private room, you're able to touch your loved one. I, I think it will be relatively safe, given our vaccination levels, still wearing a mask. And there are some other uh, added precautions we could potentially look at if we felt that was necessary. Rapid testing of visitors, for example, uh, would would potentially identify somebody who's shedding a lot of virus at that point in time. We're not there yet. We're, we're going to see how things unfold. And hopefully we will 
not see uh, a, a spike in either outbreaks or serious illness if there was an outbreak. All right. Isabel McKenzie, thank you so much. We'll leave it there. Thanks for coming on the program. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. We're going to be talking more about that story, about everything that's going up in price today. Canadian Taxpayers Federation BC Director joining us a bit later in the program, talking about everything from Netflix, from gasoline to sugary drinks, and the list is even longer than that. But first... I have to say, don't be jealous, but I have very exciting plans after work today. They involve a bike ride and going to see some freshly poured concrete. Yes, that is what stands out as an outing in a pandemic when we're still trying to get outside, get some fresh air and do things that are distanced. I've been following along with uh, the neighbors of some friends who have been doing home renovations through the entire pandemic. And early this morning, the concrete truck came Pictures were sent. The concrete is being poured. Come see. So doing a little cycle by later today. The reason I mention this is because it took a very long time to get the permit for that concrete, to get the permit in everything that is happening with this project. It's in the city of Vancouver and hearing some of the horror stories just of this one person doing home renovations and trying to get permits. Uh, I've been shaking my head going, I don't know how you do it, how you don't lose your cool every time or dread going to City Hall to try and get that. Well, a motion was put forward yesterday in hopes of making those permit delays a little bit shorter. And dare we say even eliminating? Of course, there's always going to be a bit of lag time. But if other cities and municipalities can do it, why can't Vancouver? The motion was put forward by two NPA councillors. And joining me to talk a bit more about what happened is NPA councillor Sarah Kirby Young. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, you uh, and your fellow councillor uh, Lisa Dominato put forward uh, a motion looking at clearing a backlog when it comes to permits in the city of Vancouver. What happened? Yeah, so the motion that we brought forward and it's probably important to ground people in the issue was to clear the bureaucratic backlog in permitting and licensing in the city of Vancouver, which is at crisis proportions and it's really crippling um, small business and homeowners and nonprofits in the city and to, you know, on, in sort of the bigger picture to fix the systemic issues that we have in permitting and licensing because Vancouver has a reputation as being one of the most, the slowest and the most difficult to get projects through in the region. And so we brought that motion forward to council and what happened is the mayor torpedoed it with a number of amendments that really watered down the outcomes and the, uh, the accountability to the public. So the motion itself then, and from what I understand, because of the pandemic, things have gotten even worse. So what would the motion in the the way that you put it forward, what would it actually have done? The way that we put it forward was a very clear commitment to clearing the backlog that Vancouver has and standing up and make, making that to, that that clear to the public. And, and, you know, council taking leadership on that, which is what we're hearing loud and clear they want us to do. Um, it also um, would have addressed, as I said, sort of the more systemic changes, um, but it included things like service standards, so giving more accountability to the public so that they could plan and know and turn around. We had a lot of speakers at council last night that said it can take three to six months for a sign. You know, I'm waiting to do um, safety upgrades and renovations on my house and told that I won't be able to do that for a year. Um, we had speakers that said it took a coffee roaster two and a half years to open. Well, those kind of timelines are just not sustainable. 
um, or people are bailing on their leases because they've committed to a space and they can't carry it while they're waiting for the city. So what we were looking for is to give some certainty as well um, in terms of better clarity for people about what they can expect with some reasonable turnaround times. And what is it you think that's causing, or I don't know if this was addressed at the meeting, but why is it that Vancouver has such a long uh, permitting time? Because you're right, there have been numerous reports that compare Vancouver to other parts of Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, and it always has one of the longest uh, permitting and licensing times. So what is it that's causing this? I don't think it's about people. We've got some great people. It's, it's the system is fundamentally complicated um, and and it's, it's it's broken. It's challenged. So we're dealing with volume um, that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, we're dealing with a lack of technology that became abundantly clear as we moved to work from home, um, and people didn't have the technology systems to support them. But also, overwhelmingly, our regulations are really complex, um, and we have a lot of them in the city of Vancouver, um, and. Sometimes they compete with each other. There's no clear hierarchy on them. And just the sheer complexity of them means that that review process takes a lot more time. So we need to streamline that down. We're hearing that loud and clear. Uh, I've heard from numerous people, too, that say uh, what they thought was a simple process, uh, going to one counter, uh, being told, no, this is the wrong counter. You need to go to this counter. Sometimes it's in a totally different building. They go to the counter in the different building only to be told, no, you need to go back to the place they just were. And that's something that's not a one off. I've heard that from several people. Uh, So would this motion have addressed things like that? Yeah, absolutely. That's part of sort of simplifying the regulations in the process is that we have a lot of competing, competing requirements. Um, and, and that's where people get bogged out of that process because you'll have one staff member that's just focused on a specific task that signs off on something and the next one says, oh, no, 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 that conflicts with, with my job and what I have to sign off on. Um, and that's where it gets really frustrating. So, you know, if the, if the processes are simpler and, or if you have an account person that can see a file all the way through um, and teams that are mandated to sort of work together um, and look at those issues, you're trying to chip away at those um, frustrations that people are experiencing every single day. Uh, so what was the mayor's objection to the motion as it stood? It's a great question because in my mind, when you have a, such a significant issue facing the city, which really is crushing um, our economy and, and our small business, and we're seeing the creation of an underground economy in terms of home renovations, just because people are starting to work around it, um, it we should work together just like we do in a pandemic um, to deal with a crisis and a key issue. So he proposed a number of amendments that said, let's form an internal task force, let's study it, let's throw a million dollars at it. But what he stripped out was a commitment to clear the backlog, to clear that backlog by a certain timeline, to include service standards. So Councillor Dominato and I fought to get a timeline back in and said, okay, at least let's clear the small scale projects by the end of Q2 next year and manage to get that back in. But we shouldn't have to be fighting um, to deal with a major issue in our city. We should all be rowing the same direction and trying to make it better. Uh, was there something in there if the targets weren't met, there would be a penalty? Or is it more uh, the mayor might have been concerned that if they weren't met, it might have looked like a failure or that the city couldn't do it? I, it's a great question. I mean, from my perspective, the public is asking for accountability and leadership from their electeds loud and clear. The mayor, I, I don't know if he's concerned about accountability. I think that's actually our job. The mayor made a comment that, you know, we should you know, have a task force from staff because it needed to be dealt with at the top. Well, last time I checked, mayor and council are the top, um, and we set the tone, and it's our job to stand up on this. We heard this was an issue heading into this council term. It still is. We asked questions in the beginning in 2018, in 2019, past 2020. We're in 2021 now, two and a half years later. It's still a major problem. I think we have to stand up and say, you know what, we're prepared to put our, our name on the line to deal with it. Uh, so what actually passed uh, at council? 
So we did get a motion passed that we ultimately supported because it was progressive improvement. And as I said, I think that you got to put partisan politics aside um, and really think of the people that you're trying to serve and the small business and the residents. But what passed was to strike an internal task force of staff uh, to look at studying it and provide recommendations to come back, maybe some quick start actions. Um, the mayor proposed throwing a million dollars at it, um, asked what for, do you envision that being more staff or, or technology? Um, wasn't clear um, because we don't know what the plan is yet. Um, and uh, he also proposed there be a fee review. And that worries me because when you review fees, it usually means that you're looking at them going up and not going down. And I think that if uh, you're going to do that, you better have some pretty clear outcomes. And right now, we don't have the ability to stand on a commitment to the quality of service that would justify that. In my opinion, it seems like I mean, anytime you hear the word task force, I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over as well. And they are immediately struck with the feeling that nothing's going to change. I mean, it seems like if other municipalities and other cities have figured this out, uh, it could be a series of phone calls. It could be the very staff who are involved saying this doesn't work. I mean, it seems like a million dollars in a task force is way over the top. Exactly. I, I think that's really what people are going to react to. It's, uh, it, it sets off alarm bells in people's heads, and we, our, we were really focused on action. I, I think that the staff know what a lot of those actions need to be. This was council standing up and giving them license to come back and say, you know what, it's okay to bring up some hard choices around whittling down some of these regulations. It's okay to stand up and say what resources you need for this work. Um, so we're more focused on action. But, yeah, I agree. Um, we had a speaker last night in Surrey that said, I can get a permit in a week that right now um, is taking 8 to 12 weeks to get started in Vancouver. It's uh, frustrating, to say the least, especially for people who are in that position. Uh, We'll leave it there, Councillor. We will follow up on this. But thanks so much for joining us today to bring us the latest. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. It's an important topic. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, April 1st, and that means British Columbians are going to be paying more for everything, well, for things including streaming devices, sugary drinks, and the list goes on and on. Joining me to talk more about what is on that list is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hello to you. Hi. It's, uh, it's not a great news story because we're talking about things that are going to cost more. Let's start with Netflix because this is one, I think, we were told a big bad Netflix. They're not paying taxes in Canada. They need to be held more accountable when really holding them accountable means people who use the service are going to pay tax. Yes, exactly. They're now going to pay a 7% PST on things like Netflix and anything that is streaming that originates from outside of Canada. So that includes things like Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Netflix, uh, if you listen to music while you're cooking, that's Spotify. I uh, don't know about you, but I know a lot of people in my household have been using those services a lot more over the past year. Uh, so as of right now, last we checked back in February of 2020, government officials estimated that they were going to be able to take $16 million from us every year in that. I'm guessing that's going to be a lot more because a lot more people have signed on to streaming. Right, because people uh, staying at home, like you said, you want the entertainment and you want something to to keep your attention. Yes, exactly. And I find I'm actually getting quite a bit of response from this today. And I think it's because it's gotten personal. Uh, people work hard. They're pretty anxious right now. Things aren't great. They sit down at home in the evenings and it's their time to unwind. And the tax man's coming for that time. So it's really bothering people. 
what else is going up? We talked, uh, so Netflix, streaming devices. What are we looking at at the gas pumps? At the gas pumps, the carbon tax is going up from $40 per ton to $45 per ton. I will note, uh, last spring, they paused it. They didn't increase it. This year, I have no idea why. They're jacking it up. So it's going up to $45 per ton. What that means is we will now pay 9.9 cents per liter of gasoline and 12 cents per liter of diesel. So if anybody's doing the commute and you want to figure that out, just figure out your fuel tank capacity. Your average Dodge Grand Caravan, for example, has 76 liters. Do the math. It's more than seven bucks now, just in the carbon tax to fill up your minivan. Uh, interesting. We're talking to TransLink a little bit later on in the program today because they have some interesting numbers out as well, showing people haven't come flocking back to transit in many cases, and there is still a pretty big percentage of people that are driving their vehicles. So that's going to be a big hit to people that either need their vehicles for work or for safety reasons are doing that. Yeah, lots of people need their vehicles for tons of different reasons. I mean, we're all individuals and lead our own lives. And lots of folks who, of course, work in the service industry and they work those part-time jobs, those are typically the transit users. And if their jobs have been nuked, well, they're not going to work in the same way. Uh, What about sugary drinks? Great question. So as up until today, we did not have a PST on sweetened drinks in British Columbia. They were considered part of a grocery item list. Now that's all changing. We have a 7% PST on sweetened drinks. And the reason why I'm calling it sweetened is because even though health officials try to say that they're going after sugar, it actually is applying to pop that doesn't contain any sugar, too. So, yes, your standard can of Coke with sugar in it, that's getting the sweetened drinks tax. But Diet Coke, that's getting a sweetened drink tax, too. And this is super weird. That fancy stuff that you buy at the grocery store, I use it that's a, a sweetened with stevia leaf or monk fruit. No sugar. It's getting a sugar tax. So they're estimating that they're going to be taking in more than $33 million dollars per year from people from this and also note sorry it's bad news but restaurants pubs bars anything that comes out of one of those little spray guns when they're mixing drinks that's got a seven percent tax on it now too Uh, has there ever been an explanation then because uh, you mentioned the stevia other sweeteners Uh, what a lot of people actually use to try and cut down their sugar uh, we're told that the sugary drink tax is they want to people to be a bit healthier they don't want people to drink all of this stuff so if someone is then using the alternative why is that also being taxed yeah that's what they tell you (laughs) but what they want is actually that the money they want the cash grab i asked them about that during the last budget lockup which is february 2020 which seems like a million years ago now and they said that just due to regulation, it would be too hard for them to implement it. So that in order to get as much as they can, uh, they're just going to implement it across the board and everybody gets the tax. And it's so weird that say you walk up to a Coke machine, a vending machine, and it's selling Coke, Diet Coke, and Dasani water. If you buy the water, you're still paying the sugar tax. Because it's everything in the vending machine. Correct. Hmm. Yeah, because otherwise, regulatory-wise, they said it would have been too hard for them to track it. But if I buy the water in the grocery store, I don't pay the tax? No, not yet. Let's not give them ideas. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've mentioned this before, and I'm, I, I forget, forgive me, I forget the, the difference, but I know you've compared this tax on the, the drinks that you buy at the grocery store and the vending machine uh, compared to if I walk up to a coffee shop and I get a mocha with extra chocolate, extra mm-hmm. sprinkles, whipped cream, all of that stuff, how does that play in? Great question. So this is where it starts to bug me because I see some food snobbery 
at work here. So you walk up to your corner store, uh, your corner coffee shop, and you spend five bucks, six bucks on your gigantic mocha thingy with chocolate on it. That's got way over 30 grams of sugar. Lots of sugar. You walk out of there, no sugar tax. Bob, working part-time, pulls over to the gas station and spends a buck on a can of pop. He pays the sugar tax. So even though it has sometimes less sugar and he could be much lower income and he's skimping around to get a dollar can of pop, he gets the sugar tax. But fancy lady going into fancy coffee shop buying the $6 mocha thingy, she doesn't get a sugar tax. Uh, which, again, really shows that it's not about uh, people making healthy choices. Uh, if that was the case, there could be a whole number of foods that would also be included in this. It's not about, it's like you said, finding ways uh, to slip those taxes in and hope that people don't get too upset about it. Yes, exactly. And they can get away with it again because of folks looking down on other people's food choices. So I'll give you another example. There's no tax on this yet. Again, I don't want to give people an idea. But you know how people make fun of, say, the KFC double down of, oh, isn't that terrible? We should have a fast, you know, fast food tax. It is almost exactly identical, calorically, protein, fat, all that stuff to chicken cordon bleu. But we never hear anybody saying that we need, you know, a fine French food tax. It's always picking on people who are usually uh, using lower income options. They're going after those folks with these taxes. And they don't work. In Mexico, they famously brought in a federal tax on soda pop because there's a heck of a lot of pop that's drunk in that country. Now, initially, uh, they did go down. The consumption did go down. But it eventually and gradually bounced right back up to where it was before. The only difference here is now the government has more money. Uh, almost, it's almost as if they planned it uh, that way. Almost. Uh, vaping products, this is on the list as well? Yes, as far as we can see that they're including that in the list of things. I didn't do as deep a dive on vaping, but what's interesting is I hear anecdotally from people who are trying to avoid smoking just straight tobacco with cigarettes or cigars, and they're trying to switch over to vaping because they want to do that. What's interesting is up until now, they didn't have the same level of taxes. Now they do. So they're going after vaping products there as well. Uh, have I missed anything on the list? Uh, just to give somebody, honestly, something nice to do, because I know this sucks and it's a bummer. They don't yet have a PST on flower seeds and sunshine. <laughs> and we're supposed to have a nice weather this weekend. So get out there and plant some flowers tax-free. They haven't figured that out yet. Uh-oh. Next, it's going to be uh, if, you're, if you're planting grapes, uh-oh, you might be making wine with it. So we're going to have to tax that. But and I there's guess sugar in wine. And there's oh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> and plus, honestly, you mentioned booze. And I'm really sorry, but the federal escalator tax on alcohol is going up as well. And that goes up every year, by the way. So that means that they no longer even have to have a note passed to each other in Parliament. They just automatically jack up the taxes. And taxes on alcohol are really high. Like, if you're buying spirits, about 80% of that cost of your whiskey or your vodka is taxes. Wine, it's between 50 and 60%. It's crazy. Which reminds me of the days when uh, when we were able to go across the border and people would take advantage of the fact that the taxes were a lot uh, a lot less. Yep, in... but we're locked up here now and we're <laughs> paying through the nose. Uh, what do you say to, uh, <laughs> I know Vaughn Palmer was on Mornings with Simi uh, today talking about this, and when, when asked about this, like you said, how uh, that one tax was kind of uh, stopped during the, the beginning months of mm-hmm. the pandemic and now it's going ahead. Uh, the NDP saying that they campaigned on no new taxes, uh, still claiming that that's true 
true because <laughs> these were already promised. These aren't new taxes per se. Sure, but they, they announced the Netflix tax, or I shouldn't say announced, they really hit it in funny language in the budget in February 2020. Uh, we found it during lockup. So they announced that technically, sure, back in February 2020. And sure, they announced the sweetened drinks tax back then too. Uh, why it didn't come up during the election? I don't know. They were focusing a lot more different topics back then, but they are cranking up the carbon tax after they paused it. So that is a tax increase. And I need to I need to warn people, uh, this is just the beginning, because now uh, Premier Horgan has signed on to Justin Trudeau's backstop. And what that means is a mandatory minimum on the carbon tax. And Trudeau is now going to jack the carbon tax up to $170 a tonne by 2030. So within the next nine years, a liter of gasoline is going to have a carbon tax of 37 and a half cents a liter. That's 27 bucks to fill up your minivan just in the carbon tax. All right. On that uh, happy note there, we will leave it there for today. Chris, thanks so much, though, for joining us to talk all about this. Plant flowers and sing to yourself. Well, earlier this week, we were talking about the idea of allowing business owners to allow dogs on their premises, whether we're talking about a cafe with a patio, having maybe a couple of tables that would be designated dog friendly, having a portion of the patio, having the whole patio, if that's what they chose. So the same day we decided to talk about that, Maple Ridge came out saying they are going ahead with a pilot project for any business that wants to be dog friendly. They've got some grant money to do that, and it would be along the lines of having a sticker in the front window saying this is a dog-friendly or pet-friendly establishment. We got a lot of calls when we talked about this before, both for and against it. Then I saw this story out of Nova Scotia with the headline that dogs are now allowed on patios in Nova Scotia. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about this and how this change is being received. So Gear Simonson is the owner of the Stubborn Goat Beer Garden in Halifax and joins me on the line now thanks so much for being with us hi how's it going very well how about you we're doing we're doing good here on the east coast (laughs) we had we had uh, we had two covid cases and the sun is out so we're uh we're living the dream out here that's uh, that's great to hear. I love the name of your establishment, and I, I'm going to promise you right now, uh, when the travel restrictions are lifted and it's safe to do so, I'm going to come pay a visit to the Stubborn Goat Beer Garden. Look forward to that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what are your thoughts on this as far as animals, dogs, being allowed on patios? Well, for us, it's been, it's been ongoing for a few years now. And it, uh, you know, we have, uh, as, as a group, we have, we have four locations um, and opening a new one. So we're up, we're up to five patios and we're in the hospitality industry and we're in the business of saying yes, not in the business of saying no. So when, you know, when you see a, you know, a family down on the waterfront walking along, you know, baby in a stroller, another kid in tow and, and, and a dog, and they want to come in and sit down and, and have a drink and, you know, just uh, just relax a little bit, and then we have to say, no, I'm sorry, you can't come in because you have a dog. But well, it's, it's, for one, it's, it's never well received, and it's also not ever really nice to say. So it's been, it's been very um, controversial here on the, on the East Coast for a long time, and uh, so we're, we were really happy when it finally, you know, came through uh, just a few days ago that dogs were now going to be allowed. Uh, what were some of the were there business owners who were opposed to this saying no this is going to lead to conflict we don't want to have this and and didn't want this to happen 
Uh, not that I heard of. It's been as, as far as all the business owners that I know, uh, they've you know they're they've been very open about it. They've been wanting it, and uh, but that's not to say it's not going to come without some complications. Um, just as anything new, you know, there's there's always that that trying out period and and working through things. But uh, but we're we're very happy about it. We're we're optimistic. And how does it look then for you, or how do you see this playing out as far as would you be a business owner that says, okay, the whole patio is is dog friendly, or do you designate a few tables or an area? What does that look like? Well, that's that's actually a great question, because um, just for all the people that love dogs, we also have some guests that, uh, you know, that have had some very traumatic experiences with dogs and, you know, or don't necessarily want a dog right beside them. And and we want everyone to feel welcome. So, so in an effort to do so, in some of our larger locations, we have second floor patios, especially at our, our Starmagot Beer Garden on the waterfront. Um, so there, you know, we've toyed with the idea of maybe making the second floor uh, not necessarily for dogs and, you know, keeping that down below. Because I, I don't think, you know, everyone needs to be welcome. And, and uh, just because someone's, like, afraid of dogs, it shouldn't be... The onus shouldn't be on them to all of a sudden we drop down like, you know, 180-pound Great Dane right beside them and just assume that they're going to be okay with that. Because I, 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 I don't think that's fair either. So, um, you know, so if we have a guest that comes in and is like, you know, I prefer not to be in a, in a, in a dog zone, well, then, you know, we should have something for them. And, uh, you know, as much as it's a win, it shouldn't be a loss for someone else because of that. And as I understand it, too, it's not as though business... Uh, business owners have to allow dogs. This now gives the the decision to the business owners on whether or not they want to. Yes, it does. Totally. And then, and it comes with some, you know, there's a little bit of rules there as well. Uh, you know, you're not allowed to feed a dog uh, while, you know, inside a, inside a license or inside the premise. Uh, you have to provide your own dog bowl with uh, water. We're not allowed to provide that. Uh, not on tables or chairs. You'd, you'd think that would be a, a no-brainer, but unfortunately, we've had to deal with that situation as well. Um, so there's there's a little bit of responsibility on the dog owner and the dogs, and you know it's 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 you know we're we're in we're in the hospitality industry, and as much as we have rules for our guests, we also have to have rules for the dogs, and and there has to be proper behavior for everyone. And and that was that's where I believe dog owners come in too. And unfortunately, there are a, a lot of dog owners uh, that, or every dog owner thinks their dog is perfect. Not every dog is happy on a patio or wants to stay, uh, you know, in right at uh, his owner's feet. Um, what about uh, if there are issues? So one thing that always comes up when we are whenever we're talking about this, uh, we get calls into this station of uh, people saying, "I don't want dogs anywhere near my food. I don't think it's hygienic to do that." Is there any issue you see as far as dogs being on the patio and f- being in an area where food is served i per- personally i don't like we like right beside our location we have we have a it's, it's like an area of uh, kiosks if you will there's like a pizza place there's ice cream there's and then there's a communal seating area in the middle and no one has any objection to dogs sitting in that area so i'm not like what is the difference between sitting in a restaurant environment you know that's enclosed or or one that's you know like open seating in a kiosk it's it's very much the same but granted there is a lot of onus that falls on like just because a cute puppy walks in doesn't mean that all of our servers you know can run over and give some scratches and cuddles and then go grab their food right you know like so so there there's onus on now us as 
you know, as a business owner is to be like, you know, do not, you know, you're, you're not allowed to handle the animals in any way. You know, there's like, yeah. So, so there, there is definitely some responsibility on us to follow and practice safe food handling. Uh, do you think this is a good thing as well with restaurants and pubs and so many uh, eating establishments that uh, have seen their uh, their revenues go down because of the pandemic? Will this encourage more people, do you think, to come to these establishments and support them? Have, have revenues gone down in restaurants? Uh, they oh, have. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> obviously, obviously. Wow, it really uh, is good well, on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we drink a lot here. No, I'm sorry. Uh, but, you know, but it's, yes, it, everything helps. Right. You know, like any time there's a group that comes in and wants to stay and then they're not allowed to and move on. Well, that's that's potentially a vacant table. Um, and uh, so so every little bit helps. But it's it's also just, you know, it's, it's a good environment when everything is is handled well and uh, and everyone behaves just like, you know, we don't we don't allow unruly guests, you know, that have had too many beers. You know, we don't allow that. We can't have dogs that, you know, want to be dominant and aggressive you know, we can't allow that either, right? So, so, but t- but typically, you know, most dogs they sit underneath the table. They are, you know, they just kind of mind their own business. They stay in the shade, and and there's no issues. And as long as that remains like that, we uh, we're very excited about it. All right. Uh, sounds uh, great, especially uh, for those dog owners that would love to go uh, onto the patios. Gear, we'll leave it there. But thanks so much for joining us, and glad to hear things are going well there. I appreciate the call. Thank you. Well, TransLink says people are driving their personal vehicles, and that has actually bounced back a lot faster than transit ridership in these past few months. That could have a big impact on the bottom line at transit as well as service levels. The TransLink Mayor's Council is now grappling with the issue of ridership and wondering if it will return to pre-COVID levels once everybody has been vaccinated or if we're looking at a situation where a large number of people will remain working from home home, therefore not riding transit nearly as much. Joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about this is Jeff Cross, Senior VP of Planning and Policy at TransLink. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here today, Jill. Uh, Do you know the numbers as far as where TransLink, where transit ridership is at now compared to pre-pandemic? Yeah, today, um, or at least as of last week, we were probably at about 40% of our pre-COVID ridership. Now that varies if you're on the bus it's a fairly uh, high uh, versus West Coast Express, which is very commuter oriented, uh, which is much lower. Uh, so it would make sense that obviously the ridership on the West Coast Express and hasn't bounced back nearly as much. Yeah, it targets those office jobs in the central business district where, as you pointed out, a lot of people right now are working from home and as such, they have alternatives versus our bus system, like if you're on Scott Road and you're using it, you would say, wow, it looks not that different from pre-COVID levels where it's being used for all sorts of different purposes. Uh, What about uh, places like SkyTrain and and Canada Line and and other type systems there? Are we seeing much of a bounce back there? Uh, They have held steady since probably last summer, uh, just around the mid-30 percentage points. Uh, It depends on the market. If you think about like the uh, Canada line, uh, it serves both the commuter market, all day shopping market, but then you also have the connection to YVR, which has been much lower and will be until flights 
uh, and activity at the airport really ramp up. Uh, but that's important to note that that's over 200,000 people a day are still using the transit system, over half a million daily boardings, uh, which is more than actually the city of Portland had on their transit system before COVID. <laughs> Uh, the, the numbers out today as well, uh, and Janet Brown has been reporting on this, taking a look at the number of people that are driving personal vehicles. Does that show you, though, that people maybe are hesitant uh, to get back on transit for whatever reason or, or, or have safety concerns with the virus? Absolutely. We know that that's a dynamic. We know that people are concerned about sharing spaces in general, whether that be on transit or in an office. Obviously, people are not going uh, as much to events because they're not occurring. So in general, that that concern about shared spaces is a tough one. And until we transition out of that, which we are thankful to see is likely to happen sooner than we thought, maybe even six months ago, uh, ridership will probably stay at these levels. Similarly, if there are no Canucks or White Caps games going on where people can attend, uh, that's going to suppress ridership as well. So people are more likely to use their vehicle for those those uh, purposes that they otherwise took transit on. What does this mean then for service levels in the future? That's a really good question. So today when we went to the Mayor's Council, we were coming forward and everybody wants to know what the future of cities looks like. And so we've been doing a lot of work trying to understand both on what the updated vaccine uh, forecast will be, uh, when the uh, people will start working from office again and going back to school. It was great to hear the provincial health officer provide guidance to the universities that they can start planning for in-class learning in September. So we've been using all of those pieces to really understand what the demand is likely to look like uh, when we come out of the pandemic. And what we're seeing is that we will probably have a fairly robust and rapid recovery. It's not going to be exactly at the levels we saw pre-COVID, but it's probably going to be in that range of 70 to 90 percent. And then to your question, we need to make sure that we're providing transit service levels that are convenient and comfortable so people will come back and we know they will we've got safe operating plans in place we know that people arriving today feel safe and so the customers when they come back they'll feel comfortable uh, with we with people though working from home and a lot of businesses saying uh, it's not in the plans in anywhere uh, in the foreseeable future to go back to a full complement in the office and that that might actually permanently change how people are working and and people working from home maybe only going into the office one day a week if that won't that lead to a permanent decrease in ridership absolutely it's a structural de- decrease and in many ways uh, Jill we would say that that's a positive thing in fact for for years TransLink and other agencies have been trying to do commuter trip reductions through our travel smart or other things where we promote telecommuting you know for the people that are listening to your program today and they're in their vehicles uh, doing a commute trip that that peak of the peak during that hour whether you're on the road or at transit is really uncomfortable and an inefficient way to size the transportation system. So to the degree that people are substituting that trip by staying at home, working from home, a little bit of school from home, maybe they're taking other trips at off-peak times, that's actually a really positive thing for the way that we deliver our transportation uh, system going forward. It does mean that we need to adjust our service levels a bit and we need to think of a new way to pay for this. But it's important to note, too, that this region continues to grow. 
and growing by 30 to 40,000 people per year around our transit system and in our regional transit centers, that we know that transit is going to continue uh, to be a key part. And in fact, uh, over time, we will definitely surpass our pre-COVID ridership. Uh, When you talk about finding a new way to pay for this as well, uh, I know at the uh, board uh, there was uh, there were several mayors who were uh, opposed and said that that to vote unanimously, which the TransLink board has to increase the fares, the average at about 2.3 percent starting up in July, uh, saying that is hurting people that uh, have to take transit that are still having to go to work. uh, A lot of low income workers. Why was the decision made to go ahead with uh, that increase at this point? Uh, obviously, the impact of having lower ridership is also lower revenue. And thankful, uh, we're very thankful that the federal government and the provincial government stepped up last fall uh, with uh, $644 million of release funding, part of which was to um, provide us with the ability to reduce the fare increases that we're, we were relying on to pay for those services. So part of our expansion plans, Jill, over the last few years have included, you know, rapid expansion of bus and rapid transit across the region. And some of that was being paid by fare increases. It was to be 8% over two years. Uh, We canceled, the board canceled that fare increase last year during the the middle of the pandemic. And then through conversations with the provincial government as well, we agreed that an inflationary one uh, going forward for this year, 2.3 instead of over 4%, was a reasonable compromise to make sure that we can stay liquid and provide those transit services uh, that those people, essential workers, families rely on. So it's not, it's not ideal, but we need to find a way to continue to pay for transit. Uh, do you think it was a mistake to go to the the method of, of buses being free in the, the beginning of the pandemic and letting ridership continue without paying at all? Um, we really didn't have a, a way around that in order to be able to rapidly uh, get people back on our bus system and to protect our operators, et cetera. So it was a short-term measure, and I think that through the the relief funding that we have from the provincial government and the federal government, it understood that it wasn't just TransLink, it were other systems that were having to deal with this issue. So we came up with a solution that's worked out for us now, unfortunately, for over almost a year at this point. But uh, I don't think it was a mistake at the time. It had to balance the health and safety of both our operators and uh, our customers uh, to do so. Uh, so looking ahead then, as you mentioned, it, it's going to look different even as people do start returning to the office and that difference in commuter trips. So will people expect to see then not as much transit in the morning and the afternoon and a reduction in those levels at those times and maybe uh, more options throughout the day? We're going to have to look at that, and that's a possibility, even what we've been doing during um, COVID and during the pandemic, given that we're operating our buses and all of our vehicles, SkyTrain vehicles, at lower capacity to avoid overcrowding, is that we've been redeploying from some of those high-frequency, high-commuter-oriented trips to other areas. I brought up the example of Scott Road, where you have all-day service, et cetera, to try and uh, mitigate that. So as we come into the fall and we understand the vaccination rates and likely a better idea of how many people will be going to school, uh, going to work, et cetera, we'll have to be adjusting our service plans uh, to better accommodate that. But your point about spreading out the service and making sure it's convenient, safe and a, and, um, a quick all day round, that is definitely going to be one of the emphasis going forward.
Uh, there's no mandatory vaccination in this province, in this country. Is there going to be any kind of, uh, po- not policy or all policy or any kind of campaign really encouraging people who use transit to, to be vaccinated? I'm not sure we've decided on that yet. And I think that's really in the hands of the provincial health officer and the provincial government and the and the local health authorities to do. We'll be supporting them with that and wherever they go forward, just like we did with our mask mandate. All right, Jeff Cross, we'll leave it there today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jill.